This morning we're starting a new series called Discipled by Jesus, um, which will take us through John chapter 14 to 17. Um, And this is basically looking at the time that Jesus spent with his disciples um, just after coming into Jerusalem, but before then he was betrayed and arrested. So we've jumped slightly back in time after Easter to the time between Palm Sunday and the Easter weekend. Now, in the other three Gospels, we have details about the Last Supper. Um, Then Jesus predicts Judas' betrayal and and Peter's denial, and then the group head into Gethsemane before Jesus is arrested. But in John, we have these chapters, which it's it's a slightly different uh, set of chapters, and it's just before he's arrested and he sits with the disciples talking about the way to the Father, promising the Holy Spirit to come, explaining the vine and the branches and how their grief will turn to joy. This is an intimate passage. Jesus is with his closest followers, the ones he called to drop their nets and follow him. He's honest with them. You might even argue a little bit harsh in how he predicts Peter's denial. He offers comfort. He gives them warning, calls them friends and assures them of hope to come. He prays for their protection and he begins the whole thing by washing their feet. It's an intimate, captive audience with their friend, their teacher, and their Lord. And as we'll see from the key theme in today's passage, this is where we are truly discipled. In the intimate closeness of knowing him, that's where we're formed into his likeness, where we learn from his goodness and are transformed by his saving grace. So, in case anybody drifts off over the next 20 minutes, if anyone needs to leave, if kids are making noise, or if the live stream fails, I can tell you the secret to these verses and to you the next 10 weeks right here from the start because he makes it abundantly clear right from the beginning. It's in the name of this series. Looking to Jesus is the key to it all. Everything we do as his people, everything we do as his church, every reason we could have to be in this building, every reason we have to act like a family, all the reasons we have to go deeper, to grow closer, and to reach wider as a church. In our all-in strategy, in those orange booklets, we, we got it right whenever we made those nine DNA points, the first of which is being Christ-centered displaying a passion for Jesus above all else and ensuring everything we do points towards Christ. All the rest stands on that cornerstone. Forget Britain first, we want to talk about Jesus first. So let's read his word in John chapter 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. And from 
from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. They will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. May God bless the reading of his word. As I was thinking about this passage, I found myself inspired by some friends in our congregation, and I found a little bit of alliteration in the layout of these verses. We see confusion, comfort, and then clarity. So first we find confusion. So Jesus has been speaking to the disciples about one of them betraying him, and then he states that Peter, the rock, will deny him. He's just told them in the previous chapter that I will be with you only a little longer. He's about to leave them. This rabbi and Lord that they've devoted three years to has told them he's about to go away. And they are straight in with their questions. We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? So the disciples are confused, shocked, troubled by Jesus' words. They've seen Jesus enter Jerusalem like a hero on Palm Sunday. They'd found their Messiah, the one they were all waiting for. And yet, he says he's about to leave. When I step back to think about this, I'm so reassured by this confusion. These disciples have spent three years immersed in Jesus' company, watching him teach in close quarters with him. They've seen amazing things. And yet... There's confusion. One doesn't understand where he's going. One still wants to see the father. One's about to deny him and one's about to sell him out. They are a mess. That's a huge reassurance to me as somebody who works full time for the church. Somebody who's been appointed as an elder in the church. Somebody who grew up the son of an elder and who's been immersed in church life all his life. I've been consumed in the world of Christian ministry all of my days, yet half the time I don't have a clue what I'm doing, I don't have a clue how I should serve, and I don't have a clue what God is doing. And I'm going to go on a bit of a limb this morning and say that there's probably a little bit of confusion in our church family. And I'm sorry for that. As elders, we feel the weight of that confusion, that frustration. We don't want to be a burden to you. We want to lift the burden to you. In this passage, we have Jesus' 12 closest followers, not sure what's going on, feeling like the rug has been pulled out of their their triumphant, triumphant finding of the Messiah. Jesus is going to leave them. And we're going to betray and deny him. What is going on? What about this conquering hero? So what does Jesus do? 
He's, he's invested so much time and energy into these disciples. They've seen all these things. They've seen fulfillment of prophecy. They've seen miracles. How does he react to these bumbling fools? Peter, full of pride. Thomas, full of doubt. Judas, about to sell him out. Philip, still not knowing who he is. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. This is the great shepherd that Michael talked to us about last week. He doesn't bring chastisement or frustration. He isn't angry with them. He doesn't jump straight to correcting them or condemning them or missing the point. This morning, the U version verse of the day is John chapter 3, verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. He sees his sheep helpless as they are, despite all that he has done, all he's done for them, all that he's seen, that they have seen him do, and he offers comfort. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You see, first and foremost, Jesus came not to show us how to live, not to make sure we have correct doctrine or that we understand every passage of the Bible, as important as those things are, not to make sure that we deliver a country that represents his laws well or that we live moral lives ourselves. Jesus came to pick up bound, broken, and burdened people and to give them liberty, life, and to lift the burden of them, of their sin onto his shoulders from ours. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And then he offers clarity. I choose clarity here over correction, which would also have fit the alliteration, which is obviously the most important criteria. But I felt that clarity speaks better to Jesus' heart, the heart of his message here. You see, Jesus isn't seeking to say, no, you've got it wrong. Let me explain it again. You keep getting this wrong. Why can't you see? Rather, he seeks to reassure his friends and their troubled hearts. Verse two, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. In, verse, in these two short verses, Jesus offers five points of encouragement about where we're going. It makes me feel very Presbyterian to have five points within the third point of my first section of this talk. In telling them where he's going, first they're assured that there are many rooms. This isn't an exclusive club in that respect. They don't need to be the first 140 in the queue in the synagogue to get in. It also implies there's going to be a job at hand in filling these rooms, but, but that's for later. And where it says rooms, it literally speaks of dwelling places or abodes. Some translations even call them mansions. There's an implied permanence, an implied that we will have a place to rest where we'll be free from worrying about our future. Thirdly, this place has been prepared for us. We're expected. J.C. Ryle calls it a place which we, find, which we shall find Christ himself has made ready for true Christians. 
He has prepared it by procuring a right for every sinner who believes to enter in. None can stop and say, we have no business here. He has prepared it by carrying our names with him as our high priest into the holy of holies. Those who enter will find they are neither unknown or unexpected. We will receive a welcome that comes from a place of expectation and anticipation, one of long-awaited and loved family returning home. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me. So not only is there plenty of room, a permanent place for us and for which we are expected, but Jesus is coming back to take us there and he will be there with us. So let's step back a minute again. This is our Lord and Savior, the Son of God who came from on high to bleed and die in our place. After three years with these closest 12, after they've seen so much, they're still confused and are about to feel him just as he comes to give his life for them all. Yet his attitude in their weakness is to comfort them, to bring clarity of the incredible hope they have for the future, one of closeness and dependence on him. And his attitude to us is the same. In our trouble and confusion, in our weakness, in our sin, And our shame, his response is the same. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Jesus also said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. When we're confused, when we're frustrated, when we're struggling, when we doubt, when we've done wrong, it's easy for us to look elsewhere for the comfort that can only be found in the one who draws near to us and who walks us through the storms, the one who has prepared a way for us. Verse five, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father as well. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now, verse six is one of the most famous, most memorized, most quoted verses in all of scripture. It's often quoted as a way of setting out the fact that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Contradicting all of our religions, showing that it's not just about believing in a God up high, but rather that we need his son's redemptive power to reach him. And this is all correct. It's vital to our understanding of the Christian faith. Jesus is the one and only way to the Father. He's the one and only source of truth. He's the one and only one who offers life because he's the only one who could defeat death. But that understanding alone misses the context that this verse is placed in, the context in which Jesus says these words. It misses this comfort that he's being offered in the context of the conversation. Jesus reassuring his disciples that he is the way they are looking for, despite their fear of losing him. It misses the power of the following verse, verse seven. If you really know me, you will know my father as well. 
From now on, you do know him and have seen him. The power of being told that through knowing him, they now know and have seen the Father. This is a verse stating fact, very important fact, that we need Jesus and everything he has done for us, that he alone could do for us, that he alone is truth and life. But we shouldn't miss his heart in stating these facts. One of love, care, and comfort for his closest companions. One of understanding in their weakness, in their confusion. One seeking to offer clarity to reassure them that in their weakness, he is the one who takes responsibility as the way to the Father. Notice that Jesus hasn't really answered the implied question that Thomas makes here. So verse five, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? So technically, Thomas is saying, how can we know the way? But the implied desire is to know the destination. He wants to know, where are we going? But Jesus doesn't take them down this route. Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The disciples are looking for a physical place or or even a, a metaphorical or metaphysical place. Where are you going? Where is this place that you're leaving us for? Now, according to motivational quotes, We should all know by now that it's not about the destination, is it? It's about the the journey, that's right. I'm so glad somebody answered that. I saw all of these yesterday as artistic, motivational quotes that you could hang above your desk or your bed frame or maybe your toilet. Life is not about the destination, it's about the journey. Fitness is not about the destination, it's about the journey. Transformation is not about the destination, it's about the journey. Happiness, love, not about the destination, about the journey. Even so, forgiveness is not about the destination, it's about the journey. Hmm. Interesting thoughts. And I'm sure there is merit in some of these, especially if you're beginning on the road towards fitness. In some ways, Jesus agrees that right now in this moment, It's not about the destination, or at least that's not what the disciples need to hear. I love how Leslie Newbigin puts it. We do not know the destination, but we know the way. That is the heart of the matter. The way through the curtain is the flesh of Jesus, the concrete humanity of this Jesus who lived and died and rose again. It's not that he teaches the way or guides us in the way, If that were so, we could simply thank him for his teaching and proceed to follow it on our own. He himself is the way. And therefore, it is only by being made part of of his humanity that we are on the way and know that we are not lost even though we do not see the destination. But when we are totally identified with Jesus, living out our baptism and our Eucharist in daily love and obedience to the Father, though we know not what lies ahead, we are on a track which we can trust, which gives us a way through the curtain. This is discipleship. This is what is made possible only by the death and resurrection of Jesus. 
Jesus is saying, you don't need to know the destination right now. You need to know me. And I am the way. Remember when Jesus called the 12 to be his disciples? Did he say, come learn from me? Come be on my team? Come do what I do? No. He said, follow me. Because he isn't just a a teacher or an incredible leader. He is the way. We are a church with uncertainty. We don't currently know the destination of where we're going in many ways. We have an all-in strategy which has great ideas and great plans that we believe God's given us. And that's, that's fantastic. We're confident in what he's given us. But there's also a lot of uncertainty. We're also people living in a world of grave uncertainty. There's a war in Europe on our doorstep. There's a cost of living crisis. On one hand, we're being asked to open our homes to refugees. And on another hand, we're being told that, no, we should ship them off to Rwanda. There's incredible amounts of confusion. These are troubling times. In many ways, we don't know where we'll be in six months lacking a destination, lacking a picture of what the journey looks like. But as followers of Christ, we know the way. He is the truth and the life in times of uncertainty and in times of destruction. Verses 8 to 11 go on to reassure us further as Philip still doesn't get it. Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, do not, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe in me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. You know me. You've been with me. You've heard me. You've seen my works. Part of me imagines a groan coming from the other disciples at this point. Come on, Philip, you're embarrassing us now. Haven't you been paying attention? But I don't think it would actually have been like that. Philip is simply struggling in the same way that we all do as believers from time to time. I've been a Christian since I was five or six. I've seen God do wonderful things. I've experienced him transform people. I've seen him, I've seen him transform attitudes, including and especially my own. I've seen him provide where it seemed impossible. And yet, I doubt. I believe we all do. It's a natural part of being human in our broken world. We don't always place the same value on what we've seen God do and we yearn for more proof. If only God would show me this. If only God would do that. If only I could see God. It's the same for Philip. Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. In the Gospel of John alone, Philip would have seen Jesus turn water to wine, 
heal the official son, cause the paralyzed man to leap, feed 5,000, walk on water, heal the blind man, and raise Lazarus from the dead. He also heard Jesus explain that every miracle revealed who he was. He experienced him fulfill Old Testament prophecy over and over again, and even refer to himself as I am, the very name of God. And yet he still says, Lord, show us the Father. That will be enough. My doubt feels a little bit less worrying in the light of Philip's. Jesus knows that his disciples need constant reassurance. They're human, after all. And he knows that we require the same. In our weakness, we doubt. In our human nature, we sin. In our temptation, we stray. And that's why he's provided for us. He's provided us a church family to support ourselves, to support each other. We have God's holy word to assure us of what we believe and what we know. That's why the Holy Spirit was sent to comfort and guide us. The next passage goes on to see Jesus promise that coming to his disciples. So in this response, Jesus reminds them of what they already know. What they've already heard, what they've already seen. His words and works could only come from God. They aren't the works and words of a human with no divine nature. And before we move on, I I appreciate that grasping the concept of the Trinity can be challenging. Okay, and I'm not going to get into that here because this passage isn't about explaining that. Needless to say, it's it's not a three-day clover. (laughs) It's not ice, gas, and water. But Jesus here is making it abundantly clear that he and the Father are a one-package deal. Today's passage, God's word reveals to us that Jesus is the one and only way to the Father. If you know Jesus, you know the Father. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. Jesus is in the Father. The Father is in Jesus. The work and words of Jesus are the Father's authority in his, the Father's work in his authority. Jesus is going to be with the Father and Jesus does, what Jesus does is so that the Father will be glorified. There is no lack of clarity in Jesus positioning himself alongside the Father. Jesus is God. Divine as the Father is divine. He may have spoken in times in parables and figuratively with comparisons, but there's no mistaking what Jesus is stating at this moment. He is God incarnate. There's a Swedish footballer called Zlatan Ibrahimovic, famous for his talent and probably even more so for some of his quotes. Speaking on his time at Barcelona, he once said, when you buy me, you're buying a Ferrari. If you drive a Ferrari, you put premium petrol in the tank, you hit the motorway, you step on the gas, Pep Guardiola, his previous manager, filled up with diesel and took a spin in the countryside. He should have bought a Fiat. Apologies to any Fiat owners. I used to own one myself. It's quite a creative way to describe how highly you think of yourself. Another time, he simply said, I can't help but laugh at how perfect I am. Now, not to compare Zlatan and Jesus, Zlatan's done that himself on various occasions, 
But a lot of the time, Jesus described himself in a similar way to the first quote by Zlatan. He used stories, comparisons. He spoke figuratively. He answered questions with questions. That is who you say I am. Here in this passage, Jesus spoke like the second quote. He's clear to the point. There's no arguing with what he means. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. The disciples are in an intimate relationship with the one who put the stars in the sky. And yet here he is comforting them about what is to come, reassuring them that he is in control of the situation. He has their interest at hearts. He's preparing a way for them and that he is God. Zlatan speaks with confidence and authority about football because he proved himself on the pitch. Jesus spoke to the disciples with authority because a short time before this, he called Lazarus from his grave. This man before them had proven himself powerful over mathematics, over chemistry, over physics, over biology. He's stating that he is God. He is the way to the Father. He's preparing a place for them and he will come back to take them there. The final couple of verses go a step, for, a step further, not only comforting the disciples and clarifying what's going on, but also telling them that they have a part to play in this. Very truly, I tell you, verse 12, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask for anything in my name and I will do it. Now it's important to understand that when it talks about asking in my name, this is going further than simply ending our prayers with, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. In ancient times, speaking about someone's name was to speak about their entire being, their character and their will. So to ask for something in Jesus' name means with the same heart the same mind as Jesus. Bearing in mind that this is all so that the Father may be glorified in the Son and also that we lack the greater wisdom of the Father. Jesus' unique work on this earth was to die and rise again, to atone for the sin of this world, provide us with victory over death, to be the way to the Father for those who trust in him. This isn't a work we can reproduce or do greater than. His wider work was to bring good news, good news that he himself was fulfilling. And what we see in scripture is that having spelled this out to the apostles before his death, he later sent them out in Acts chapter one to bring his good news to the ends of the earth in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then just a chapter later in Acts chapter two, the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost and 3,000 people are added to the fellowship of believers. This mission continues today. We have this job to continue spreading the good news. And God promises that we'll see him at work when we ask in his name. So looking for Jesus, looking to Jesus is important not only because 
he is the way for us to the Father, but also because by looking to him, we learn his will, his heart. We see his character. We see who he is and what he is about. And in intimacy with him, we are transformed to people who long after his ways, whose natural desire is to pray for the things he desires. The Lord's Prayer spells it out for us. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In this passage, we see a confused gathering of Jesus' closest followers, those who have loved and followed him for three years, who have seen the incredible things he has done, but are now shocked to hear he's going to be leaving them. He sees their troubled state and offers comfort. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. They want answers and Jesus offers clarity in providing knowledge of the way to the Father through him. This brings added reassurance as we've seen ahead in the story. We know that not only does Jesus die and rise again, proving he has power over death, power to return, but his word is also reliable. He tells, them, he tells them that they will do greater things in his name and then at Pentecost the Holy Spirit falls and thousands are added to the following. It's reassuring because we're given clarity over Jesus' claims to be God. At one with the Father, in him, doing his work, going to be with him, having prepared a place for us to be there too. And it's most reassuring because all of the responsibility lies on Jesus. On his head and on his hands, he is preparing a place for us. He's coming back for us. He is the way.